Hi, I'm Michael O'Connell, host of the It's All Journalism podcast. For more than a decade, It's All Journalism has produced a weekly podcast featuring interviews with working journalists, educators, and media thought leaders, all discussing the ever-changing media landscape. We've covered a wide range of topics such as solutions journalism, mental health in the newsroom, local news startups, investigative reporting, online harassment, and new technology. Over the years, It's All Journalism partnerships have played important roles in expanding our reach and ensuring that we are able to continue producing our weekly podcast series. We are currently seeking new partners to help us keep this podcast going. If you believe in It's All Journalism's mission, if you want to see these conversations continue, go to itsalljournalism.com and click on the partnerships link and find out how we can share your company or organization's good work with a wider audience. Maybe we can produce a podcast series for you or host your next webinar. The It's All Journalism team is ready to spotlight your organization's good work and keep these important conversations going. Go to itsalljournalism.com, click on the partnerships link, and let's collaborate. And now, here's our latest episode. NPR has local, rural reporting. And the fact that NPR is the only news source for like Western Panhandle, Nebraska, that's covering local news or something, makes it pretty durable within the changing media landscape. The idea of public broadcasting came about as part of FDR's New Deal. As more and more community newspapers shut down, the local public radio station often becomes the one last bastion of local news for many people. I'm Michael O'Connell. Welcome to Excel Journalism. Josh Shepard is an associate professor in the College of Media, Communication, and Information at the University of Colorado Boulder. He's also the author of a new book entitled Shadow of the New Deal, The Victory of Public Broadcasting. Josh, welcome to the It's All Journalism podcast. Thank you for having me. So I'd like to find out a little bit of our guests before we start talking. You know, tell me about your journalist journey. You know, what got you interested in media and what led you to your role at the University of, <laughs> University of Colorado? So I actually come from a humanities background and it started in philosophy. And I became very interested in sort of what is a public good? You know, what does a public look like? And these very broad and abstract questions. But as I went on to film and media studies for a PhD, I became very interested in the logistics of like how a public works and what it looks like and then how that creates something like what John Dewey would call an intentional agency that promotes a public good. So that would be, of course, like journalism and education and institutions like that. Okay. So you follow that track and continued on and became an educator. I switched to historical research and then began to trace, you know, historical development of non-commercial media. It was actually history that had never been written, believe it or not. America has no working history of public broadcasting from its sort of inception moment, which is what the book is about, to the Public Broadcasting Act. Like, why do we have it? What does it look like? Why does it look that way? What were those early days? What inspired the creation of uh, the public media that we have today? So public media is idiosyncratic in the U.S. in that it really came out of philosophies and politics around what they would have called compulsory education at the turn of the century. In other words, this idea that not only should everyone have to go to school, but there must be facilities provided so that everyone has equal access to education. 
And so what happens is in this country, we don't get the first compulsory education laws until the 1850s, but it's not completed since it was a state-by-state basis until the 19-teens, which is right before broadcasting emerges. So the idea that there needs to be facilities and that there needs to be resources that promote the access point to curriculum is where radio from a nonprofit perspective emerges in the U.S. as opposed to the BBC model, which came out of the post office originally and was seen as a necessity and extension of cultural discourses in the U.K., you know, you, you say it came about in the 19-teens. I mean, that's right in the heart of the progressive movement, the, the right to women to vote, temperance, and other things like that. The idea that we're dedicating, philosophically, we're dedicating something to, to the betterment of mankind or the general populace. So what was the journey then from that point to, you know, the Public Media Act? Right. So there's a pretty famous book written by a scholar named Robert McChesney that chronicles the first major media policy, which is the Communications Act of 1934. Effectively, what the Communications Act did was that it turned over the infrastructure for all what they would have called frequency allocations. So the right to just a radio point on the dial to commercial broadcasting. And the book kind of chronicles some of the early trial and error by which Commercial broadcasting wins the American system, you could say. It becomes a free market system instead of a public system. But in between 34 and 67, people were so scandalized that there was no opportunity for equal access to education resources widely available and that they had to compete with like NBC in Dayton, Ohio, right, just to educate students who are on farms, that an activist movement emerged and the contours of that activist movement were structured around understanding the policy, understanding audiences, and developing research methodologies for that, which became public policy research. Same thing as like a presidential approval ratings. And then also just learning a distribution method in which they never had to take advertising. And in some ways, that's the amazing part of the story is that they developed what we would call an economy of scale. You know, all of these institutions working together, but without income. So they built a national network before we had public broadcasting in which there could be educational programming without third-party interests or influences on the process. And so the book traces literally just the step-by-step of how they did that. So, I mean, thinking of, you know, NPR or PBS as we view it now, there are a lot of, you know, shows programs, I guess that's the word I want to use, that are subsidized by you know, large corporations or that there, you know, there is some government funding going to it. So was that model there from the beginning? That's the question I want to ask. What happens is as the government tries to understand its own policy, the Communications Act, and why it was prohibitive for educators to actually be on the airwaves to reach students for public education, they begin to look for ways to fund research to improve the situation. And they themselves couldn't select one or two favorite researchers. And a lot of the grant systems we have in place now weren't existing at the time yet. So they first go to the Rockefeller Foundation, which was already funding early forms of educational research that led to what we now think of a standardized education, standardized tests and things like that. And they say, is it possible for you all to research to know when an educational broadcast is actually effective 
at teaching. So is there a correlation between a radio broadcast and someone's ability to take a test or someone's ability to memorize information? You know, the Rockefeller's entry onto this in the 1930s, right after the Communications Act, sets the precedent for philanthropic funding in the U.S., which is then taken up by the Ford Foundation in the 1950s for NET, National Educational Television. But in between, you know, some interesting things happen, which is that the Communications Act is so favoring of corporate media and so limiting to community media that they have to create something they call sustaining broadcasting practices by which, in other words, NBC and CBS had to meet the criteria that educators would have done for free within the profit structure. And so this lasted for a long time. It's not really true anymore, but this is where the origins of public affairs on Sunday mornings comes from and farm reports on commercial media is because they had to do this job that was blocked from educators. And then later we have something called underwriting, which we're all familiar with, I think, amongst the listeners, which is a very limited form of sponsorship in which you can't do calls to action and other kinds of things. But essentially that Rockefeller model of just subsidizing the nonprofit logic of educational media has continued to today through public media. In the 1920s, 1930s, what was, you know, public radio? What were people listening to? Yeah, no, I love this question because it really strikes to the heart of why American public media looks the way that it does and not a different way, which is that when you have compulsory education and what they call distance listening, I'm sorry, distance learning, uh, distance listening was a different practice. Distance learning, and you have classroom extension services. Those would have been what they called it. You essentially have early genres that emerge that are classrooms. So the first forms of radio, like of any kind of radio, are educational resources, weather reports, stock reports. But then you have instructional broadcasts in the 1920s. So like someone like me, uh, you know, is not a radio voice, just talking into a mic. And it might be a home economics broadcast that becomes cooking shows, right? It might be a history broadcast, you know, and that becomes like a Ken Burns documentary. But a lot of the genres that we associate with public media started as just literally classroom lectures that were so poor at what they did. They were so bad at the aesthetics of it that over time they developed into what we would now call like educational entertainment by which it's the same data. It's the same information, but it's packaged in a way by which people are willing to learn. And that, of course, required a huge amount of expertise in radio itself and then later television. So people had to learn how to have a conversational you know, manner on the radio, how to have intimacy with the audience and respond to the audience. But they didn't understand these things at first. And this was part of why it took so long for public media to emerge in the country. I remember when I was growing up, I, you know, I grew up in the 60s and the 70s. I do remember towards the end of the 60s, that suddenly there were, the, there were these two channels that we never heard of, <laughs> two UHF channels. And the programming at that point was very minimal. It was either like Public Affairs or Julia Child. That's all I remember. Well, first of all, when was the act passed? So the act is 1967. Okay. So what led to the development of that? Yeah. So some of the things I mentioned before, which is that, you know, once there was a failure to recognize educational media as like a democratic necessity, you know, as an access point for education, you know, all of these best practices investigations begin to emerge. So one of them is, you know, demographic research and understanding who's listening in what way, and then can we produce data to show that something was effective at being either persuasive or educational. 
And so the origins of communications research, communication departments, what we call mass communications, comes out of this moment, which is to understand how to produce data so that regulators know how to proceed. So that helps along the way. Another thing that comes is experiments with distribution without the wires owned by AT&T, which is what RCA had and could be rented by commercial broadcasters. And they do things like shortwave relay, which like almost didn't work at all, but is like super fascinating, you know, to do live. And then they started doing something with just vinyl records and they called them program transcriptions. And they would literally go to the best flagship educational stations, which were Ohio State, Iowa State, Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, and then Madison, University of Wisconsin. And they would produce these programs that did have some entertainment value, but also met curricular standards, and then they would distribute it. And so stations around the country started to circulate, or as they called it, pedal these programs around, and they called that the Bicycle Network. And the Bicycle Network, if you talk to the founders of NPR and PBS, some of who are still with us, they will point to the Bicycle Network as the founding decentralized programming apparatus that becomes NPR and PBS about 20 years afterwards. Before we get to that point, I mean, is public media at that point, before the Bicycle Network, is it just like a bunch of like things in each town or each large city that they just really didn't communicate with each other? You know, usually that's called localism, you know, in the broadcast regulation language. And so, yeah, a lot of commercial media history is both local and national. Right. But then a lot of educational media history is ultra local because it had to follow from state bureaucratic mandates, university programs that were already extant. You know, you can only have the faculty that you have to work with. Right. Do they have money for transmitters at the university? And then how far are they relaying within the state? Because you're not legally allowed to relate to another state. So a lot of this history does begin at universities and school districts. And in fact, still, you know, a huge number of the founding public media stations are based at universities. So a lot of the bicycle network conglomerate, you know, or if we could call it that, in the 1950s, in the early 1950s, actually still serves as the seat for what became the infrastructure for the CPB and PRPBS. So it was definitely very local. It's interesting. It's the same way they, the internet emerged, you know, researchers and the government, you know, working on things. And suddenly that sort of opened up commercially. So one of the things you said about the book or like when you're pitching the book, it was the early days were tumultuous. What do you mean by that? Yeah. So because early educators had this like strong philosophical vision about the necessity for equal access to education, but very little knowledge about how to use radio technically and aesthetically, they weren't really able to persuade their own universities, local audiences, and especially not national regulators, that it was a necessity that they would have what they would have called non-competitive frequencies. So in other words, if there's no income coming in, how could they possibly compete with the local NBC affiliate, you know, in, in Omaha or something like that? And very likely the NBC affiliate had excellent talent that could then keep the audience's attention and that the audience actually wanted to listen to. So what happens is a lot of early educational radio is truly nascent. It has to like figure out how to use what it has, maintaining its vision for equal access to education without the resources and without the access to the entertainment industry, because you can't pay them a lot, you know, when you're in the middle of nowhere and you don't know what you're doing with your mic. So it's a really interesting story insofar as, you know, the final 
development of it is a very substantial and important American system, I would argue. But it took 40 years of experimentation until they really understood what the genres would be that would be different than commercial media. And then how to use the mic in ways that were informative and kept the mission statement going while sounding enough like commercial media that people actually were willing to come back to it, that it had its own voice. Today, we have um, we still have public access television. We have public access radio stations. I know near me, there's like a handful of these like small, you know, maybe they've got the full reach of their uh, radio is maybe just a county. Do you think that that's sort of where that, you know, early days, that sort of thinking where you where people were had access so that they could create unfettered? Do you think that's sort of you know, moved on into something like public access or? Yeah. So, so I think that you're asking a very interesting question, which is how many other kinds of forms of non-commercial media are there concurrently? And I thought about this a bit. So we have, you know, public media, which is really a derivative, but then also an innovation on education. But then we also have like community media, which emerges in the post-war era with like the Pacifica stations. And what does it mean for there not to be a gatekeeper or a curriculum, but just equal access to the mic? And so I love community media history. And I love the way that almost anyone in a community could then speak on behalf of and advocate for, you know, embodiments and perspectives. And then you have these other forms, like you have a form you don't want, like no one wants the state media forum, which is, of course, propaganda, right? State media. So everyone accuses each other of being different forms of state media, but truly none of our forms are actually state media uh, compared to what could exist. And then you get into like the public access, you know, histories for television. And, you know, that has to do with some boring later policies about, <laughs> about you know, once- Less so, exciting. Let me um, uh, take a step on, back on that, which is in 1952, they begin to give television allocations and there's only a very limited number at first, but as they expand, the question becomes the same question that they fumbled in 1934, which is, are there non-commercial entities that shouldn't have to compete? And then what frequencies should they get if there's enough frequencies to go around? And so, yeah, you begin to get sort of these public access and also closed captioning models after that. And those, of course, are really great too, and some of the more interesting and bizarre things I've ever seen in my life are on public access television, and I hope that continues. <laughs> I can't remember from my journalism school days. When was the FCC established? So the FCC is actually created by the Communications Act in 34. Okay. And they get a lot of flack for the deliberations, but they're a regulating agency. They don't make laws. So they, they're only empowered to do what they're literally told to do by the laws made by deliberative bodies like Congress, you know. Yeah, so they FCC are the ones who strip educators of their licenses. But when you go to their personal letters in the 1930s, they themselves thought it was preposterous. The government itself couldn't access the airwaves for education, the Office of Education, which became the Department of Education later. So they actually start working with the Department of Education, what we would call now the Department of Education, to create provisions by which local institutions like not just universities but you know school districts would be able to reach their students so how has the the arrival of the internet affected public media oh this is actually kind of a controversial question i think in some ways because of how funding works my take is that npr did one of the smartest things of american media history in the 90s which is they made radio synonymous with the digital so they were one of the very first institutions to just go online and make extensions of radio broadcasts 
part of the listing experience. And so that's been a crucial part of NPR's growth and identity and really stabilization, I think, considering that they deserve a lot more money that they don't get. At the same time, television streaming has been reduced to only something like five major distribution mechanisms at this point, and none of them are PBS, right? PBS did not get a hold on that and has almost like a subscription rate now to access it instead of being easily publicly available you know, they call them carve-outs. You know, I could see a situation in which a carve-out is made by Nova is funded, but they go straight to Netflix or something. So then where does that leave PBS with the digital? It's above my pay scale. I hope it survives forever. I think it's a crucial part of our democratic discourse. But I could also see a world in which television actually gets broken up into different parts while radio remains relatively stable. I'll say one quickly reason why is because NPR has local rural reporting. And the fact that NPR is the only news source for like Western Panhandle, Nebraska, that's covering local news or something, makes it pretty durable within the changing media landscape. Especially as more local uh, news outlets, you know, disappear or get bought up by corporations. There's not a, a place for people to get local information, but also, you know, that isn't controlled by, by somebody who doesn't know who they are or maybe what their the perspective is. And that's kind of where you move toward, you know, a more <laughs> dictatorial type of, of media. So you also organized the Library of Congress Radio Preservation Task Force. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, I've got two hats. So my first job, academic job, was at a school called Catholic University in Washington, D.C., and I was there for some years. And as happens for people who live in D.C., and I didn't know what was coming, having gone to school in Wisconsin, <laughs> middle of the farms, was that, you know, if you have an expertise in a sub area, the government will invite you to come work on a project. So I was invited by the Library of Congress to help build a task force for the Recording Preservation Board with a professor named Christopher Sterling, who was dean at George Washington University and who recently passed. So I wanted to mention his name. And he had a very distinguished career. And we started to do a survey for the Library of Congress on what radio recordings are extant, where they are, you know, and then like what kinds of content were in those recordings. And this came out of something called the National Recording Preservation Plan. Okay, so that's the bureaucracy. What we found in the first year was that it was almost entirely unchronicled as a history. And as a historian, we call things like paper trails. So in other words, like primary documents. So like personal letters, ledgers, you know, policies. So when we study certain things, we look for certain kinds of information that's novel. And radio turns out to be largely what we would call non-theatrical. So in other words, we think of Jack Benny, which is amazing. You know, and we think of vaudeville on, on radio. And we think of variety shows. We think of early drama. But most radio history is talk shows, journalism, documentary, man on the street, you know, woman on the street, you know, doing an interview. And so what we ended up realizing within one year of the project was that we had this national repository of documentary evidence of local history, and not only local history, but of alterity history. So civil rights histories, orientation, activist movement history that was using radio for community organizing. And so really by the end of our second year, we had a big conference on Capitol Hill and uh, hundreds of institutions uh, joined the project. And so we're still, we're entering our 10th year now. And so we have a few goals. One is that anything that reflects American history 
should be preserved. So it doesn't matter what political you know perspective, it doesn't matter where it is, it doesn't matter how big or small. But then we're also interested in where we don't have histories that feature certain experiences and how sound history might actually help us to fill in some of those blanks, especially from the 50s to the 80s. It looks like most that's where most of the recordings come from. So we have a conference every couple of years on Capitol Hill. We just collaborated with the Smithsonian Libraries and Archives, which was wonderful. And, you know, National Archives participated as well. It's very logistical. So we have this two sides. We have this cultural side that we're trying to create recognition through sound of certain experiences. And then we have this logistical side where it's like you have these recordings on old magnetic tape, you know, old reel-to-reels, and it's decaying. And if we don't preserve it soon, it's going to be gone forever and we'll actually lose the history. So there's this very mechanical, logistical side. And then this kind of like high-minded, can we also recover memory kind of side to the project. It's kind of like what the the federal government has done with the preservation of film. That some of the things that, you know, obviously they're major motion pictures that they're trying to preserve, but also interviews and sounds and video of speeches or film of speeches or things or events that happened that they want to preserve because they want to make sure that there's that record. So how much were local stations like recording? Tape was expensive. I would imagine they recorded over earlier recordings. It's also good to point out that the recording board is like the sister board of the film board. So we are, it's actually the exact same people who would work with Martin Scorsese on film who are working on recordings. And so I am like the fellow of that board, of the sound board, which is the same people at the Library of Congress. Yeah, you get to something that really only a journalist would understand, I think, which needs to be explained, which is that not everything that's recorded stays recorded. So tapes will be taped over five, 10 times to be syndicated one more time in the middle of the night, you know, just to have a backup, you know, for later. And then the next week, they just tape over the same tape. So some things that were actually preserved initially were only ephemerally preserved. In other ways, popular shows that become regionally syndicated, you know, would then be copied on limited number of reel-to-reels and then sent around. And so those are more likely to exist, the popular shows. And then it actually comes down to often like how intrepid was the DJ themselves and how interested were they in preserving their voice. So a lot of this history, and this is really truly the hardest part, ends up in attics and garages and basements. And then an estate contacts a local library or the Library of Congress and says, hey, my, my dad did this amazing interview show or my mom for 30 years. They just passed. What do I do with all these old tapes that I can't play because they're so gigantic? We have no way really to get those materials to a safe space. So we don't have a way to get that to a local library or university. And that's one of the things we advocate for. But sometimes it does happen and we preserve it. And we end up with like these really important historical moments suddenly reopened for the horizon that had been forgotten. So yeah, a lot of it is local and some of it's preserved. It depends the medium that it was preserved on. It depends on the will to preserve memory. And then from there, there's the, the question is, is there a will to move from that initial preservation to like a digital preservation now? You're anticipating our next question. You know, we're, we're a couple of decades away from entertainment on the internet, audio on the internet, podcast, for example. But- is some of the stuff you're preserving digital? Because, you know, we've had people on who talked about the fact that, for example, uh, political campaigns, if there's a political campaign for like the, the 2023 city board or whatever, 
what they found was that the losing candidates tended to sort of just let their let their websites go fallow. And so the, a lot of information that was would have been useful for voters to know about different types of people and, and what they were advocating for just kind of just disappeared. And it was so a matter of, okay, we, we need to figure out a way that for us to, to preserve that. So anyway, I guess back to the question, is digital part of this? So, you know, the way DC is, our mandate is narrow. We're basically analog media, but I know all the people who do these other things. There's a great project at University of Wisconsin, actually, which is a National Endowment of the Humanities funded called Podcast RE, the letters RE, that is chronicling podcasting. And I don't know how much it preserves, but at least creates the metadata for the history of podcasting as it happens. It's a pretty important project. I know the Library of Congress has some interest in this and is working on something or other for podcasting preservation. I'm not in a position to know what's happening exactly, and I wouldn't speak on behalf of it, but I know that the institution does care about this and it has people who would work on that. And then, you know, we have like the Wayback Machine with archive.org, you know, the internet archive. And so some of these pages you're talking about do kind of like get snapshot, at least in part by internet archive. And that's a really amazing resource. But to agree with you, we are going to lose 90, 95% of internet and digital history because of changing web domains, because people didn't think to preserve what they had. There's nowhere to send it. So the, the idea that the internet could be so influential and so deep within our lives at this point, but then at the same time, so ephemeral by design, and not only by design of the internet, but by the design of our consciousness about the internet, that we ourselves are not thinking about our own posterity is actually going to really come to the fore in the next 50 years. Like you said, it's going to be something we're going to look back and be like, where did that all go? And the truth is, is that we didn't think ahead. It's sort of that simple because preservation is not that difficult. You know, You know, I know you said something about hoping that public media would continue. I mean, what are your thoughts about sort of the, the future of public media? Yeah, I think, in my opinion, the block grant structure of the CPB receiving money to give a degree of separation from government that it then delegates to local affiliates and third-party producers and then NPR and PBS. So I think that that structure is actually pretty good and that it needs a lot more money. I think it deserves at least three times the money for it to achieve its mission statement. And so one of the things I note in the book dryly is that you know Republicans have been trying to close down public media since Nixon, and the Democrats have uh, barely tepidly supported it. <laughs> you know, there's actually no groundswell of support on either the left or the right for public media. And in my opinion, it's mostly a centrist, centrist liberal at most reporting mechanism. I don't even think everyone calls it liberal or leftist, but I think it has some diversity to what it reports. But politically, it's not very political uh, in ways that maybe it should have been over the Trump era, in my opinion, you know, for example, because it just wasn't simply reporting transgressions that were happening. So I think that what's going to happen is it's going to stay pretty stable as it is and be picked apart slowly by carve outs and the digital world. <laughs> That's my opinion. Unless the Democrats step up if they get a majority again and further buttress its support and at least double, I think, its funding. So I think it deserves it. So my personal opinion is that we need it, but it doesn't have the support that it really needs under inflation to continue with its mission. So do you think that you know, we think about, you know, public TV, you know, every station, every town has Sesame Street, let's say. And when people think of the relationship with public media, more often than not, they're thinking about the content that's on their local station. 
and it's at their local station where they sort of support it. Do you know these people who are sort of locally focused? And you know, I'll write a check for you know WETA in Washington D.C. But the the larger idea of public media that it's not something that they would just sort of actively think about or support. Yeah. So one of the arguments I make in the book, I make two big arguments, and it's it's a history, not an argument book, right? And I'm not, I'm not making contentions about it, what it should be. It's more of like a genealogy of where it came from. But one of the things that I think we really need to think about in this country is that public media is a mission statement based approach. It is deliberately non profit. And if it becomes profit in one way or another, it is no longer public media. It's just a genre, you know, of, of that's like another, you know, competitive commercial entity of some kind. So I think the first thing to think about with public media is why does it exist? And why did people struggle for it for so many decades with no ostensible personal goal or gain for doing it? So we have this like history of activism for equal access to education through technology in which people didn't make money, they didn't get recognition, but they stuck to it for entire careers, you know? And I think that's pretty amazing about the history because people really believed in the democratic equity capacities of non-commercial media. And that leads to the second thing, which is that once you got to 67 with the Public Broadcasting Act, which was a major victory of the activism, it actually separated it permanently from the educational system that it was a part of up to that point. But the other side of it is that actually removed access to certain kinds of educational grants and audiences that are written into its own mission statement. So reaching the smallest possible, most diverse audience, right? That kind of thing is implicit to a non-commercial form. But what you have is, you know, students are like the most renewing and diverse possible and educational, educationally diverse group of listeners possible that is out there and they have no access to that anymore. And they see themselves more as competitors with Gimlet or something like that, or other commercial stations, whereas they always in the first place had the right idea, I think. But also if there was a reuniting with the educational sector, there would also be all kinds of grant monies and all kinds of possible donations that wouldn't pivot at PBS against HBO or something, which is a totally inappropriate distinction. You have Don't Nabby or something, that's a BBC show, right? So all of its successes are in what historically they would have called cultural uplift programming, which is a problematic term for like, because who's culture and what what uplift, right? You have these like shows about aristocracy and how great they were, you know, or how complicated they were, but that doesn't necessarily meet the criteria of a mission statement that it should be non-commercial, reach every possible audience and uplift democratic voice. And so I think like education where it started is actually where it should conclude, Still, but I still actually love non-commercial media and public media. I still think it does a great job. But uh, yeah, I think that really focusing on the why it exists is the way that it will sustain itself. You know, Josh, this was great. Thanks for coming to the podcast. Actually, I like the idea of also talking about the audio preservation. Tell me the name of your book again so that people can check it out. Yeah, the book is Shadow of the New Deal, The Victory of Public Broadcasting, it's on University of Illinois Press, and it details how sort of the messy, disorganized form of early educational media matured into public media to serve, you know, the national listenership. Excellent. Thanks for coming on. Thank you. You've been listening to It's All Journalism, a weekly podcast about the people who report the news. You can find out more about us and download past episodes at itsalljournalism.com. While you're visiting our website, sign up for the It's All Journalism newsletter. 
To make sure you don't miss an episode of It's All Journalism, you can subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, Google Play, Amazon, and pretty much anywhere good podcasts are found. If you'd like to help us grow our podcast, like and share our episodes on social media. Look for us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. It takes a lot of people to create an episode of It's All Journalism. Nicola Grisco is our audio producer. Amber Healy writes our web content. Amelia Brust is our booking manager. Steph Thomas manages our social media. Nick Dupre composed our theme music. Carolyn Bolefsky designed our logo. And I'm your host, Michael O'Connell. Thanks for listening. <laughs>